Wonderful, wonderful to be here with you this morning. My daughter Chloe is around somewhere. You'll uh, see her, and if you see her, you can uh, say hello to her as well. Um, you should have gotten an outline, which, um, which were printed and circulated. This morning, we're going to be talking about Matthew 28, um, 11 to 20. This is right after the resurrection. We're going to take the last half of the chapter. And as you turn there, I want to tell you a little bit about an experience my family had this past summer. My grandparents are both uh, with the Lord now. My grandfather at 98 went to be with the Lord not too long ago. And this summer, we, out, we all went out to Pennsylvania to, um, do, to have a memorial service to celebrate their life. Um, they were godly people. And one of the memories that, was, that came up to my mind several times was being out on the lake with my grandfather fishing. I remember being just a boy of 10 years old or so, and um, when I was learning how to fish, I didn't have the easiest time, but my grandfather was helping me through it as I learned. I remember not particularly liking putting the worm on the hook. If it wasn't slipping out of my hand, then the, then the, the hook itself was poking me in the finger. I remember the, the worm was kind of slimy and difficult to grab to begin with. And then after that was done, then getting sort of the line in, in, in place so that I could cast it without any problem was always a bit of an issue for me. And by that time, even after I had cast into the water and, and the bobber was sitting there, there was sometimes with the ripple of the water that I would, that I would think there was a fish on the line and pull it and there was nothing there. Um, you know, the, the process of learning to fish as a young boy wasn't the easiest. But my grandfather was the expert. He was always there, not just when I was baiting the hook, not just when I was casting, but even as I was waiting for the fish to grab. And there were times where he would be standing behind me and helping me, and no matter what, even if, no matter what kind of problem I was in, no matter what trouble that I encountered in learning how to fish, I, I was confident, not in my own ability there, but I was confident in my grandfather, above all, helping me through every situation. Now, this story is a bit of a parable. It's why I tell it. That in Matthew 28, Jesus is described in much the same way as I just described my grandfather. Jesus' relationship to us as we go and make disciples is very similar. He's near to us. He knows everything. He's 100% in control. He's patient in our weakness. And he's with us until the very end. So today's text, Matthew 28, 11 to 20, it's probably going to be familiar to most of you, especially those of you who have been in Christ for any number of years. But I don't want any of us to, to fall into the trap of because we find it familiar, therefore checking out. Actually, on the contrary, we ought to all look at the text expectantly like really expectantly. The Lord has something for each and every one of you this morning. Think about that. You're not just coming here because you've always come here. The Lord's got something for you today. He wants to speak to you in his word, and he's changing you from the inside out. So let's go to the text today with that expectation, shall we? Let's ask the Lord 
And you ask the Lord in your heart right now, Lord, what do you want me to see here today? What do you have for me? Be expectant. Today's passage is really, after the resurrection scene there, it's a, you could look at it as a series of snapshots or different responses to the resurrection. We have, of course, the responses of the women as they see what happens. I won't focus on them quite as much as I will the responses of the guards and the chief priests. We have the responses, of course, of the disciples. And then, of course, we have Jesus reacting or commenting to the disciples what is to be. So these responses that I just mentioned, especially those of the the guards and the tax collector, the guards and the chief priests and the disciples, these responses really represent two different worldviews, two different ways to live. There are those that follow Jesus and those that don't. And of course, those that follow Jesus base their whole life on the historical, the historicity of the resurrection. But we mustn't pretend here that, and we'll see from this text, that faith in Christ isn't only about history. In fact, this particular text shows that facts are not the main battleground. The main battleground is, in fact, a spiritual one, not an intellectual one. There's one other helpful kind of background, piece of background information to this text that I want to bring to your attention now that that I think you'll find encouraging, as I have. It's about Matthew's gospel as a whole. If you look into the writing of Matthew's gospel, you'll find that a lot of Biblical scholars today think that Matthew's gospel was written either in the 60s or the 70s, maybe as early as the early 80s. But given that time frame and given what we know about church history, think about it. Matthew's gospel is completed at what time? Matthew's gospel is completed in the, perhaps as early as the 60s when some of the most prominent leaders in the church had just been executed. Think of Peter. Think of the Apostle Paul, both in the mid-60s. And into this context, where believers like yourself would have been saying, what happened to our leaders? What's going to happen to us? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I am with you, even to the end of the age. So Jesus' words into this context, not just this text, but the writing of the whole gospel as it was given to the church early on, probably would have read something like, don't forget, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Don't forget, I'm with you, always even to the end of the age. So the situation in the world at that time made it every bit as easy to take their eyes off Jesus as our situation does today. That's what we, what we want today, is not to forget the Lord in his authority and his nearness to us. We must always remember his authority and presence, his power and his nearness his sovereignty, and his goodness. Because Jesus 
is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the text that I'm about to read to you here, it picks up after the resurrection. The guards, you'll remember, the angel comes, sits on the rock. The guards are there, and they see the resurrection, and they fall down and shake like, like dead men. The women are there, and they're, they're, uh, they're freaked out as well. They, they, but the angel, they stay. The angel announces the resurrection to them. And then when they flee, they actually meet Jesus, the risen Christ, on the way out of the garden. So that's where our text picks up in verse 11. As the women were leaving. Uh, if you have your Bible open, you can read along with me from verse 11. While they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city And told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Allow me to pray one last time briefly as we get into the text. Lord, we pray in the words of Psalm 119, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Change us through your word, by your spirit. Conform us into Christ's image. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 11, while they, the women, were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests. So as the guards were going, they thought, uh, we've got to tell our boss what happened. But whatever else the guards were thinking besides that, they were thinking at that moment, what they were thinking at that moment was what every other guard in the Roman Empire would have been thinking. They had failed. They knew they didn't do their job, and usually guards in that situation, not having guarded whoever they were supposed to, were put to death. So the predicament before them was they, what the, they saw what happened, they fainted in fear, and they knew their necks were on the line. They knew they would be killed for not guarding the tomb. tomb. So what a predicament. What are they going to do? Well, what did they do? They chose to save their own skin. They chose to put themselves into the hands of the chief priests to be saved, not the Lord who sent the angel. Now, the chief priests, they're the ones in this situation that mastermind the lie, aren't they? They make up a falsehood. They, tell the, they concoct a bribe. And then they tell the guards how to spread the falsehood. And it was so effective that Matthew even says that that was the dominant narrative up until the day of his writing. 
So this all makes a very important point to us that I want us not to miss here today, and it's point number one of this sermon. Faith in Christ is first and foremost a spiritual matter, not an intellectual one. What I mean is, faith in Christ isn't primarily a cognitive thing or simply a matter of getting the right information. If it was, I think every university religion professor in the whole of of the world would be a Christian. They study it all. They get all the information there is to get. But no, of course not. Our worldviews are powerful in shaping what we do with facts. Human beings are complicated. We're so complicated and our worldviews are so powerful that we may, in the face of history and eternity-shaping events, choose a bribe instead. So that's, this is why, if you, think, if, if you think that today the biggest problem with the world is an intellectual one or a cognitive one, a lack of knowledge, I think you're focusing on the wrong thing. The problem with the world today is, is and has always been a spiritual one. This is, the reason that you believe in Christ is not because you are smarter than the next person. It's not because you just happen to stumble across the right set of facts, albeit God is sovereign in all of the facts that you did stumble across. Here in the U.S., it's really easy to think that if we share the gospel in just the right way or give the full facts with the right amount of sensitivity, that it'll change everything. But this actually, I think, is one of the things about living overseas that is easier it's a lot easier to, to, to be reminded regularly that the people around you are in a spiritual cloud. For some reason, it's easier perhaps because you're a bit of an outsider in the culture, you're a bit of an objective eye on the culture. It's easier to see that there's a lot more going on there than what's being exchanged between you and them. It's easier to remember that there's a lot more under the surface than there is that meets the eye. And so it's easier to remember that you can't do a thing to open the eyes of the person that you're talking to. But all you can do is share what you can in the way that you can and hope that the Lord opens their eyes. And this, but this is really how it always works, no matter what culture you come from. We're all... We all came to Christ being able to say, I have no idea fundamentally what happens. I mean, I know the circumstances. I know what happened on the surface. But under the surface, I have no idea. All I know is I once was blind and now I see. So I say this because even as we look at this negative picture of the guards and the chief priests, it actually ought to encourage us in a bit of a roundabout way. Because as we approach our our, our neighbors with the gospel, as we approach those in the workplace, it's crucial to remember that it's crucial to remember, first, we do have to speak no nonsense about the facts of history. But sometimes it is best in conversations like that not to necessarily even start with historical facts, but to start with questions that might be a little bit more subjective in nature. Like, do you really think your life has significance? 
Or what about the meaning of life? What do you think about that? Or how do you feel about your kids growing up in an uncertain future, with an uncertain future post-COVID? Sometimes we begin with questions like that, or we could begin with an assertion of fast, but in any, in any situation, what these different approaches to talking to people about the gospel are, are doing is they're actually trying to flush out what's in their heart, what's under the surface, and make that clear. And as we do this, we do see more and more clearly what the blindness that they're dealing with is like, what spiritually lies between them and believing. And therefore, how does the gospel meet their concerns and bring, to bring them from darkness into light? So Christians here, we as believers, really should take encouragement from this passage. The unbelief of our neighbors, the unbelief of our coworkers, family members, it's ultimately a spiritual thing. And it's ultimately not your responsibility to save them. It's your responsibility to testify as the Lord gives you the opportunity to do so. Interestingly, in the text there, we see the angel testifying. The angel testifies to what happened. In one group, the women are beside themselves with excitement, and the guards faint and then run off to lie and cover it up. Same testimony, two completely different responses. So texts like this show us that evangelism is primarily about testifying to the goodness of God. And the testimony doesn't even have to be the full gospel either. Um, not long ago, I, we were, when we had just come back from, from Asia to Minnesota, we were living in a temporary house, and we were staying, we, where we were staying, the, um, I met the neighbor next door who, who I pretty quickly found out wasn't a believer. And when he found out that I was a Christian, he said, he said this, he said, you know, there's this one Christian I know who talks about Jesus. Actually, this Christian is, is, helps me with gardening. So, so uh, this is an older man, and, and he had, he had a, some um, a lady come over to the house to help him garden. And he said, you know, she, she talks about the Lord, and she talks about, she, she talks about Jesus. And, and to be honest, I kind of expected her to do that because she's a Christian. But then there's this other person who I've spent a lot more time around. I've helped them doing this, that, and the other, and I know they're a Christian, and I've never even heard them reference the name of their God. Isn't that funny? This is the non-Christian telling me that. And after I heard that, I thought, wow, it, it's really encouraging to me when I hear a non-Christian reflect like that, how important it is to take any and every opportunity to talk about the Lord, even when it's not the full gospel. Even when we don't get, have time to get into Jesus died for your sins. When we just have time to praise the Lord for something that happened. Or to refer to God uh, in some way, shape, and form as rel relevant to our lives. When, when this happens, there's a... There's a, um, there's a, um, a uh, 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 proverb that I heard not long ago, and it goes like this. It's a, it, it's a Mandarin proverb, and it goes, and it's basically the, the English equivalent of just toss something out there and see what happens. And a lot of times, sharing our faith is about tossing something out there and asking the Lord to work through it, to work through us. 
If you're here today and you're wondering, you're not a Christian yet, and you're wondering, well, what exactly does it really even mean to be a Christian? I'm kind of interested, but I'm not so sure. You need to know, and as you read this text, be made more aware that you're not just a brain walking around objectively evaluating reality. As you evaluate Christianity, know that you're evaluating a fundamentally spiritual question, not an intellectual one, primarily. So you might not only ask the question, is Jesus true, but is he real? Do I see him in life, work? Not only does, does what Jesus say ring like it's correct or right, but is Jesus good? Christ didn't only raise from the dead, but he is raising people from the dead, people just like you, from the dead every day to walk in newness of life with him. So if, you're an, uh, if you don't yet call yourself a Christian, I just encourage you to pray today. Pray that the Lord would reveal himself to you in that way. And pray that you would respond like the women and not respond like the guards. They knew their eyes had been opened, and they knew life would never be the same. So point number one has been faith in Jesus is first and foremost a spiritual matter. Point number two is going to come from verses 16 and 17. The point is, of, the, of these two verses, Christ is maturing us even through our weakness. Christ is maturing us even through our weakness. Now, the weakness to which I refer is primarily spiritual weakness. Obviously, it's not physical or, or anything like that. It could be spirit, spiritual weakness that you face individually. It could be what covenant faces corporately. Verse six, verses 16 and 17 go like this. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. They had been told, to, so they were obeying. They went to Galilee, to the mountain that Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, the angel and Jesus had told the women in verses 7 and 10 to go to Galilee. And now, the 11 disciples have listened, and they have gone to Galilee. So you might say their feet were obeying, but their hearts were lagging behind. They saw him and worshiped, but some doubted. Now, the original language, the Greek of this is not actually clear what exactly this means. I mean, are we talking about some, there's one group of worshipers and one group of doubters, or there's everybody was a worshiper, and then there was a layer of doubt in there. We don't really know just based on, on what the text says. But I actually don't think it's that important. The main point of that is that somewhere in this community of worshipers, doubt was mixed in. And you know, whenever doubt is mixed in the body, as it always is, one person's struggles become the struggles of the whole church or the whole group anyway. In fact, the New Testament encourages us to bear one another's burdens. This, this part of the text makes me think of Thomas. Can you imagine how his doubting at the resurrection would have gone over among the disciples? It's not like he was just sort of off in a corner on his own, keeping his doubts to himself. He was among them saying, unless I see him, I will not believe. 
The people here in Matthew also had persisted in their questions, even after they had witnesses come back and testify. So, Covenant, we should take courage from this as well. The church throughout history can testify to the fact that there has never been a weakness-free or a challenge-free church. There's never been a local church without doubts, disputes, trials, opposition, quibbles, anger, division. There's never been an individual without issues like that. Today's passage, among many others in Scripture, they normalize this sort of thing. It also normalizes, it, and it normalizes these sorts of challenges for the average Christian. Doubts and fears and relational conflict and weariness. Now, they all seem to work their way in, and they do chip away at our worship of Jesus. This is normal. I don't mean that it should be accepted. I don't mean that we shouldn't resist and fight against it. I simply mean that this is part of life in a pr- prior to the new heavens and the new earth. This is a normal part of our walk, and it's why Paul calls it a fight of faith. So, in a nutshell, we should watch ourselves and be careful not to be discouraged by the fact that we're discouraged. We should not be disheartened when we see weakness, but rather ask the Lord, what do you want to do in me as I see this? What do you want, how do you want to grow me up? The question isn't, will challenges exist? The question is, what do we do with them? Problems come, we should expect that. That's another thing that's actually a lot easier working overseas too. We just kind of expect problems. We expect problems within and expect problems without. And the question is, what do you do with that? Life isn't unusual when there are problems. It's actually unusual when there aren't. And that doesn't necessarily make it easier, but that does mean we can take it in stride a bit more. A couple little illustration from our context in Asia. A couple years ago, um, our kid's school was visited by the authorities, and it seemed that I was, it seemed that everyone in the community responded a bit differently. I mean, you have, I know you all can identify with this, but you put pressure on any group, and that pressure sort of pings around in different ways inside the group. And some people were emboldened. Some people were in the tentative middle, wanting to, do, wanting to just do what's, what's wisest in this situation or that. Other people were quite frightened and really had more of a flight mentality. It was difficult at times to navigate this with so many people in so many different places across the spectrum. But this has to be the kind of context that we see that we just read about in Matthew 28. And it's just the one in which God forces us to rely on him. It's just the sort of situation in which God forces us to rely on him. Because often we don't until we're at our wit's end. And we don't know what else to do. But the short answer of how to face trials and challenges like this comes from this text when Jesus then speaks. And Jesus says two things that we'll get into more and more as we finish up the sermon today. But he says, all authority has been given to me, and he's with us. That means Jesus has the authority to mend our weakness in the end, to mend our weakness or to grow us up through it. 
Jesus' authority and presence are really summarized in a verse that is listed on your sheet, Philippians 1.6. One of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That means he is maturing us in our weakness right now. He is actively at work in us now. Praise the Lord. And it means that Jesus, just like my grandfather, who supported me in my fishing struggles, Jesus is behind us. He's supporting us in our doubts. And he, he is slowly and surely um, helping us to grow in him. It means that as a body, as we pass through trials, we can also be more patient as we recognize weakness in others. We know, even though it's frustrating at times when we see weakness in the body cause division, we know that this weakness through trial is being burned up like dross, like it says in 1 Peter, leaving pure gold which results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. So point one was faith in Jesus is a spiritual matter first and foremost. Point two, Christ is maturing us in our weakness, and we can take heart from that. Point three, following Christ is practicing his authority and presence individually and together as a body. Now, I know that practicing his authority and presence is a bit of an awkward way to, to talk about this, I'm going to spend the last, this last point of the sermon kind of helping you understand what I mean by practicing his authority and presence. But in a nutshell, practicing means to exercise. It means to work out. It means to press on toward the very things that Christ said we should among each other, or we should do among each other, both as individuals and as a body. So in Matthew 28, Jesus declares all authority belongs to him, and he declares his presence with us in the Great Commission. Now, sandwiching that, sandwiching his authority and his presence, is the Great Commission itself, and we often focus on that. Most of you could probably quote it to me. Interestingly, though, we, it seems to me that we spend perhaps even more time talking about the Great Commission itself than the promises on either side. We talk a lot about the job, but less about Jesus. We talk a lot about the mission, but maybe a little bit less on the master. But the master is the only way the mission gets done. So the Lord is our only hope in fulfilling this task which he gives us. So you notice how, how much the Great Commission, too, in this text, involves the life of the church. We usually think of go and make disciples as the verse for missionaries, right? Not so. First of all, it's the ver it's a verse for the whole Christian church worldwide. But when you look at the verses and think about what actually happens in the context of the local church versus outside the walls of the local church, you'd be surprised. Go and make disciples would be the one part that probably is, you know, it could, e could it as easily be done outside of the the fellowship of the, of the saints as inside. But it doesn't exclude what goes on in here too, making disciples. But then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, will you do that in the context of the local church? Someone's profession of faith is affirmed. They're baptized in the presence of all believers. And then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, well, that's the local church. 
So here we have the Great Commission, the missionary verse, and in fact, it's as much about or more about what happens in the fellowship of the local church as anything else. His authority and presence, they have to be as clear and as relevant, or they are as relevant, and they have to be something we remind ourselves every bit as much in here or as a fellowship as we do out there. There are a couple other verses in the New Testament cross-references that I want to take you to. I didn't print them in the, um, in the, uh, on the sheet, but I could just read them for you that deal with Christ's authority and his presence. One comes from Matthew 18, 15 to 20, and when I tell you about it, you'll recognize it. Um, it's about church discipline. And this passage is the one that tells us if your brother sins against you, then go bring someone else to them to tell them their fault. If they don't listen, bring it to the church. And if they don't listen even to the church, then tell it, then treat them as if they weren't a Christian. Don't consider them Christians. So we have what we have there in Matthew 18 it starts off with two individuals in conflict, and it grows into a whole church matter. And this passage, of course, carries this matter of church discipline out to its fullest extent, like casting somebody out of the church. But verse 18 mentions that we have the mandate of the Lord when it says we have the authority to bind and loose. It says that in the text. That, mean, that refer, refers to the authority of the church among us. And then, and, and then in the end, it's shocking to see where two or three are gathered that's, by the way, it's, we usually refer to that in context of prayer, but it's, it's the context of church discipline. Where two or three are gathered, there am I with them. The presence of the Lord. The authority to bind and loose, the presence, there, is, there am I with them. He's here among us. Colossians 3, 15 and 16 is a familiar verse. Let the peace of Christ, listen to this, rule in your hearts. The authority of the Lord ruling in our hearts. Let the word of Christ then dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So in a nutshell, we have there the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit by him, by his work among us. The authority of Jesus says, sorry, the authority of Jesus says in his name and by the power of his Spirit Things can happen here. Change can be brought about. The presence of the Lord says, in Jesus' name, I can be a spiritual encouragement here. In our context in East Asia, churches are often forced to stay small or meet in small places and like 30 or 40 small. Um, And it makes this sort of practicing his authority and presence actually a little bit easier. Here at Covenant, the bigger you grow, the more intentional you're going to need to be asking, these, asking each other these sorts of peace of Christ ruling in your hearts or word dwelling in you richly kind of questions, having that kind of fellowship. So if we go back to our passage today in Matthew 28, we shouldn't first look at our circumstances. We shouldn't first look at how we're going and making disciples, how we're baptizing, how we're teaching. We should first look at him. We should first look at, remind ourselves of his authority in our circumstances and his promise to be with us and ask, Lord, show us what you're doing here and show show us how we can be a part of it.
So you see, when we really take to heart the authority and the presence of the Lord, the authority over heaven and earth, and I will be with you, what do you think in the end? What do you think that ought to do among covenant as a church or you as a person? This is an application question. If you were to think to yourself, a heart that really grasps the authority and presence of the Lord, what's it going to look like? You know, there's actually a lot of, there are a lot of different ways you could go with this, and the Lord might take you in a different direction than I'm about to tell you. But the thing that I thought, first and foremost, the heart that has really, really been caught up in this truth of the Lord's presence and his authority would be a praying heart, would be somebody who doesn't walk around thinking, well, what am I doing here? What are we doing here? What's going on here, first and foremost? But the heart would be, this would be a heart saying, Lord, what are you, what are you about? What are you doing? And how do you want to use me? It's like what Jesus said at the end of John, I think it was John 14, when he said, I don't speak anything on my own accord. I just speak what the Father has told me to speak and do what the Father has told me to do. It's because all authority and and his presence are so pervasive that you have to pray more so that he'll open your eyes. None of us see this naturally. We need spiritual eyes to see it. This is the opening of our eyes This opening of the eyes is what I've kind of not done a good job of referring to when I say work out or practice his authority and presence. What I'm basically saying is, would the Lord be pleased to do that today among us? And would he be pleased to do this work in your heart individually to help you feel the impact and the weight of his authority and his presence over everything you do personally and over everything covenant is as a church. It's exercising in your heart. It's exercising your heart to see him at work and take part in what he's doing. One last little cross-reference that I thought of when preparing is 1 Corinthians 13, 12. You might remember at the very end of that famous chapter that's read at so many different weddings, Paul says, now we look in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. That's an incredible verse. What it basically is saying, in other words, is what Philippians 1.6 says. We're all being made more and more like him. But Paul's metaphor there is, we're all looking dimly at him through a, a glass, darkly. And... Each time the Spirit works in our heart, passes over our heart, it's like like a cloth dripping with Windex being, being spread across the glass and us being able to see just a little clearer through the glass. Every single point in which we're growing in Him, the glass is being wiped off so that we could see more clearly who He is and what He's doing. That is an incredibly encouraging image, I find for all of us to think about. So I opened up today's sermon with a little story about my grandfather and fishing. 
The one thing I didn't mention to you at the time or didn't go into a whole lot was I remember two or three times being scared at what happened. But I wasn't scared by what happened with the fish on the end of the line. I was scared because my grandfather standing behind me, when he would see me needing something, in a hurry would reach up behind me and grab my arms and, and, and help take control. Now, the reason it scared me was not because he grabbed my arms so tightly or anything like that. It's because I actually forgot he was there. I was so engrossed in fishing and in what I was doing, I completely forgot that he was even behind me. I had become so fixed on the task at hand, the pains of getting there, the challenges of catching the fish, that I totally forgot that he was with me. My hope for us today, Covenant, is that we would become increasingly aware of the Lord who's always with us and who has all authority in our, in our lives, our ministries, our circumstances. And as we do, that we'd become a more prayerful people. Not being surprised, actually, when he takes control, when we see his control more clearly. And as we, as we do, as we do that, and we see him more clearly, then, he'll, then he grows us into his likeness. Because, we're see, because it's, again, the, the glass is being wiped off and we're seeing more clearly like we will see him 100% clearly when we get to heaven. So let's, let's ask the Lord to do that among us today. Let's pray together. Lord, that is humbling to think about how authoritative and omnipresent you are, and yet how little we really recognize that. How often we sort of go about our day, how often we'll go hours and hours without even a thought to you. Father, this has to be what Paul said was the God of this age blinding the people of, earth, of the earth, blinding the hearts of mankind. Lord, we don't want having had hearts that, are, that have been made alive in Christ. We don't want to dip back into old blindness. We want to completely, we want to uh, day by day be ever more aware of who you are and what you're doing in our hearts. So, Father, we pray that you would do that because this isn't a work we could do in ourselves. We need you. We need you to work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And as you do, Lord, open our eyes to see what you're doing around us and build our faith in all that you are to us and all that you will be in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.